The Ram Dama's Kingdom by Robert P. Fitton. Episode 12 Flowers in the Snow. The wind had picked up and was whipping heavy rain into the expedition. McGee, Annie, and Baker were moving through the very rugged terrain in the Andes foothills. There were five native guides and half a dozen mules were bringing them deeper into the unexplored regions. Hoping the showers would subside, the leader of the expedition, Rodriguez, a short, dark-haired man with a fluffy mustache, brought them under an extensive rocky overhang. The other guides seemed upset, gibbering away with Rodriguez. As McGee spread detailed contour maps over the bottom of the cave, he could see that their argument was getting fierce. Hey, what the hell's going on here? He yelled. The wind was still howling very loudly. I don't understand what he's saying. Rodriguez shook his head as he crossed over to McGee. He says, senor, they don't want to go on. What do you mean they don't want to go on? Asked Annie. It's just what they say. Hey, it's just a little rain, said Baker next to the edge. Two other men left camp this morning, said McGee. I demand you tell me what's going on, Rodriguez. I, I cannot say, senor McGee, he answered. McGee knew he was holding something back. As all the other guides began unloading the burrows, he became angry. Damn you, Rodriguez, you better tell me what the hell's going on, he said, pulling up the map. You can look right at this map, Potero Grande, the place we've been searching for. It's only ten miles north of here. Oh, <laughs> we know that for sure, senor, he told McGee as one of the guides whispered something in his ear. Rodriguez nodded, and the man, afraid of McGee, backed his way over to the burrow. What's wrong with him? Senor McGee, forget what these men do. It is of no consequences. I will bring you, Senorita Sinclair and Senor Baker, through the mountains to Portero Grande. It's very kind of you, but we're not taking another step until you tell us what they said. Rodriguez rubbed his mouth as if he were trying to wipe something off his face. He was still very reluctant to discuss what the man had said to him. Rodriguez, chided Annie, I will tell you. But you must not believe in these things, he said as the other men began moving down the trail. Just tell us, Rodriguez, we're big boys and girls, said Baker. This land, she's bad. Men tell of tales of these lands. They leave their families to work in the mines at higher elevations. This is many years ago. Some never return. Oh, come on, scoffed McGee. Legends and superstitions. It's true. They said of these men coming back, not even remembering their own names, or where they lived in the valley. People like to invent things, said Annie. Makes it larger than life. I know all that, Senorita. I have never seen these things, but... But nothing, said McGee as he knelt next to the map. Now get down here and show us exactly where we're going. It scares me, said Annie. It's Potero Grande itself. 16,000 feet up, no trees, no plants, nothing but snow all year round. I told you, Annie, said McGee, the Ram Damas village, the place of his birth, Antofagasta de la Sierra, was right down the bottom, in the region where we first started. Okay, it's the birthplace of the Ram Dama, said Baker. That printout said that the red metal had something to do with Potero Grande. Only makes sense, Bake, said McGee. 
Yeah, it makes sense, all right, he told McGee, but he shook his head. McGee, I don't know how I let you talk me into these things. I'm standing here on some mountain down in South America. God almighty. You get your share of the red metal, Bake. Sure, we just walk into this snow-covered castle and rip it off right under the Ram Dama's nose. We'll do it, Bake, he said, hitting his friend on the shoulder. Well, we'll do it, Bake. How many times have I heard that before? Look, kid, I'm an optimist, he said as he turned to Rodriguez. Well, I have told you, Senor Marquis, I will bring you. We still have the day. Let us make the most of it. Yeah, right, complained Baker. I ain't gonna hang around this place all day. Good, smiled McGee. Then let's move out. No one else, however, was smiling. Once again, they had to weather the storm. The rocks were slippery and the canyons deep, carved several thousand feet into the rocky mountainside. Rodriguez, having recovered from his earlier bout with superstitions, led the way, showing them exactly which rocks to climb as he kept them on the proper trail. The feisty little man confessed as they went along that he had been within five miles of Potero Grande, but no closer. As they moved along, his apprehension grew once again. Although the rain had abated, the wind still pelted his tough-skinned face. He seemed to be looking around every rock, scanning every foggy canyon under the gray hanging clouds. It was as if someone were lurking out there in the mountains. Something would spring out and attack them. Intuition told McGee to turn back but he shrugged it off and trudged forward through the mountain passes. As they packed up the mules and broke camp, the morning sunshine brightened the well-defined snow ridges above them. Such extensive snowfall so early in the season was quite unusual. Landmarks and familiar sights were not as clear. Working with McGee, Rodriguez used the compass to determine the map trails through the snow. But the air was getting cooler, and as they hit the snow line, the burrows were having trouble. Potero Grande was less than three miles away. They filled the backpacks and secured the snowshoes. The burrows were released and the remaining four members of the expedition moved up the slope. The view of the surrounding landscape was impressive. The valley, at least a dozen miles behind them now, was green and lush with rivers spreading toward the far horizon. To the right, however, were more clouds gathering. A front was moving in. It would be a race against time now to get to Potero Grande before the onslaught of the storm. The snow hit about three in the afternoon. Just very light snow at first, but as the day darkened, the storm intensified, bringing a strong wind and a blizzard of snow. In essence, they were trapped. Rodriguez took out a long, thick rope and connected them all together. Visibility was down to zero as they nudged their way upward, and the rope was their only lifeline to survival. McGee felt a slackening and soon saw Rodriguez's snow-covered hood approaching. What's the matter? yelled McGee through the wind. The smartest thing to do, Senor McGee, would be to camp near the ridge. But we must be less than a mile away. Mile away from what? Annie cried out. This seems like a wild goose chase. They probably planted this information on the computer program. I will not turn back, cried McGee. I am not asking you to turn back, senor. It is 6 p.m. It will be getting darker and colder. We can continue just as easily tomorrow morning. Our thermal tents will keep us warm. You're right, McGee. He's right. He knows the damn region. He's afraid to go on, aren't you, Rodriguez? Senor, the daylight will help us. The storm... The hell with the storm! You're afraid! 
yelled McGee. His obsession with the red metal was now very apparent. We're going on! I'm going to settle this damn thing once and for all! He yelled as he pulled on the rope. Are you going, or shall I lead the group? No, I will lead, he said almost inaudibly, turning his handheld searchlight, and they moved through the swirling snow. Now darkness was upon them. Rodriguez had been correct. Traveling in the storm at night was extremely hazardous. Nothing was visible except the constant barrage of snow around the light. McGee, more than any of them, marched out every step, almost trudging on the rope as he moved forward. It was as if the prospect of even being near the red metal filled him with an insatiable drive, an illogical and quite self-destructive consumption, because the snowy terrain had become vicious. The worst that could happen, happened. Rodriguez was about 20 feet ahead of them, appearing as an indiscriminate glow in the storm. In an instant, the light vanished and the rope became taut, yanking them all to the ground. The Argentine guide was crying out in the darkness. McGee immediately moved forward on his belly, the tight rope almost pulling him along. He could sense the steep edge of a snow cliff. Without any light, however, it was impossible to see. Rodriguez, where are you? Help me, Senor, help me! He called from below. The rope was tight as a steel cable. McGee, feeling with his gloves, went forward. As he did, Rodriguez, moving downward, was dangling over a drop thousands of feet. He cried out even louder. McGee, help me! Unbeknownst to McGee, Baker gripped on the rope. It was only his superior strength that kept them all from falling below. That rope! It's a slipping! screamed Rodriguez and it jerked quickly. I am hanging by my hands! Hold on, Rodriguez! Hold on! Everyone pull! Annie attempted to dig her feet into the snow like Baker. Each of them, with all their strength, struggled valiantly to save Rodriguez's life. The storm was too strong and he lost his grip, holding on with only one hand. There were forces more powerful than his human spirit, forces he or any of them could compete with. The wind took him away, his voice slowly faded into the howl of the storm, and the rope became slack. Now, they were all alone. Rodriguez! cried McGee, pounding his fists into the snow. Rodriguez! He's dead! shouted Baker from behind. Annie crawled closer to McGee and held him closely. She could feel the cold stinging against her stocking mass. You and your plans, McGee! Up here with no light, no guides, no direction, just trapped, McGee. All because of that red metal. Going the rest of the way. Well, the hell we are. We're going back. We're it's safe. No, no, we're almost there. How do you suicidal, McGee? Without no light? No way, man. I ain't joining you down the bottom of that gorge. We're just a little off the trail. There is no trail, McGee. We had just waited till dawn. That man would still be alive. We're going on. You're crazy. You're crazy. McGee tugged on the rope, pulling the loose portion around. He checked the knot on his waist and then moved back away from the crevice. But the rope tightened. They weren't moving, and McGee stomped back to them. We ain't going nowhere, McGee. I'll just undo the rope. No, McGee, please don't do that, please, said Annie. As they were arguing, the wind swept in from the right, 
few moments later, they could feel warmer air, rain, and moisture. If he put back his hood. Warm air! Warm air! You're just believing what you want to believe, McGee, suggested Baker. But McGee knew better. He untied the rope, and as Andy pleaded with him, he ran up the slope. Do something big. McGee, get back here! Get back here, McGee! They ran forward after McGee. McGee's instincts were correct. The air was growing warmer and much more foggy. Almost predictably, the snow turned to rain, warmer and warmer as they ascended. He could hear Baker and Andy behind him. The snow cover was thin and finally changed to bare rock. His skin ached from the cold as the temperature soared, and through the fog he could see distant lights. He emerged in the clean, fresh air, the stars beckoning above, and he stepped into the rocky rim of a massive caldera. Inside this oversized crater was a wide span of valley land with the lights of a village several miles hence, shining brightly in the night. He had reached Patero Grande. Annie! He cried as his senses returned and he rushed back in the fog. I'm right here, she said, hugging him. He walked out of the fog with him, once again reaching the clear air on the edge of the caldera. You gotta be kidding me. You were right, McGee, you were right. I thought we'd all be dead, said Annie, still holding McGee. Can't say I didn't have my doubts, he said as he looked out across the valley. If this is a hallucination, at least it's warm. I think once again, I might add, said Baker, you lucked out, buddy. Damn lucky. I don't know how he does it. I don't know how he does it. I, for one, can hardly believe it, she said on the rocks to the right. Do you really think it's down there? I would say that this is the place, a perfect location to hide that red metal, he said as he thought. Now if we can just find it. Annie started laughing loudly, then she covered her mouth. Oh, how did we ever end up in a place like this? It must be our sterling ideals, like rolls of hundred-dollar bills, servants, chauffeurs, lust, answered McGee, seeing it all before him. Baker rolled his eyes. He did not share the same intensity as they all did. I just have one itsy-bitsy question, Harry, old buddy, he said, crossing his arms. And what's that, Bake? I'm available now for questions, he smiled. These slopes, they're pretty damn steep. McGee reached forward over the edge. He scooped up a handful of something in his hand. Volcanic cylinders, Bake. What we're going to do is just slide our way down the side of this volcanic crater. Oh, no, no, McGee, said Andy. We should get some sleep. That storm was a harrowing experience. We can rest down the bottom, sunshine. If you look closely, there are trees down there. We'll have some cover. Up here, we're just sitting ducks. McGee, I ache all over, she said. Just a few more minutes, Annie, he said, extending his hand. He pulled her up, shuffling forward down the slope. It was not nearly as difficult as it had appeared from the top, and as they maintained their balance, they could slide at a faster clip. It took them about ten minutes, and they clumsily pushed their way through the dirt, reaching solid ground at the edge of a thick forest, a welcome change from the snow above. It was like they had entered a jungle. The underbrush was thick and full of intertwined vines. All around they could hear the sounds of birds and animals shuffling through the leaves. McGee shined the light ahead as they moved between the tall spreading green trees. He found a small piece in the thicket, a perfect place to conceal the little thermal tent. Can we finally sit down, McGee? Asked Annie as she pulled off her boot. My shoes are filled with that cylinder stuff. 
After we pitch the tent, we can rest, said McGee. As he looked forward, the village lights were no longer visible. He's a pusher, Bake. Well, tell me about it, said Baker as he pulled the tent out of his pack. He never lets us relax, even for a second, she said. McGee turned, smiling at her as he walked over. I let you relax in Wyoming, he said softly so Baker couldn't hear. She slowly smiled. You look great, Annie. I look awful, she said, knowing her hair was all matted down to her skull, her face dirty, and she needed a good shower. Just a little longer, sunshine, then we can sleep, he said, running his knuckles slowly down her cheek. I hate to break up this little love fest, said Baker as he unfolded the tent. You sure are demanding, kidded McGee, walking over to his friend. Demanding me? He began as he responded to McGee's wisecracks as they set up the tent. McGee was insistent that the tent be covered with small vines and leaves. Even deep in the forest, he was not taking any chances. They settled back into the tent, having eaten most of their daily provisions in one sitting. McGee set his digital to wake them just before dawn. But because of all the excitement, it took him several hours to drift off into a deep sleep. Baker was snoring in the middle of the night, and he opened her eyes. But it was not the snoring that had caused her to wake. McGee! McGee, she said once again. What is it? He asked, tightening his face. Quiet, I hear something, she said, looking through the screening into the jungle. What the? Baker said, the cadence of his snorings interrupted. Annie, Annie, we're miles from those lights. Probably a bird or something. Let's get back to sleep. Yeah, I guess you're right, she said as she looked back to him. I'm just nervous. McGee patted her on the head and turned over under the blankets. His mind drifted back to Phoenix. The words Pratero Grande on the printout. And the Ram Dama, what was he doing in this tropical region within the high mountain slopes? And why did he steal the red metal? Questions that his lust for money and riches made him ask over and over again. His intensity had already cost one man his life. He wondered as he lay on the tent floor just how far he would go. Just what would he do to gain possession of the red metal? Bright light blazed out of nowhere, illuminating the orange tent. The long, sharp blade of a steel sword ripped swiftly through the thermal fabric. Before they could even respond, they were pulled out from the tent and into the forest. Screaming and protesting violently, they were dragged in the underbrush. Protesting vehemently, they were dragged along the underbrush toward a number of portable lights ahead. They were about to meet the proprietor of the land. High atop a lavender silk sedan chair with gold arms and trim, the Ram Dama sat in all his glory. His eyes were as dark as the night. He looked down upon the trespassers. All around his enforcers, dressed in their black robes, were standing guard, ready to respond to his slightest whim. What the hell is this? McGee shouted as the enforcers held him back. A very appropriate question, Mr. McGee said the Ram Dama. He rose from the chair, his silken robe unfurling at his feet. Yes, a very appropriate question. How do you know my name? asked McGee, the enforcers holding him tightly. Let them go, ordered the Ram Dama, waving his hand through the air. McGee slowly came forward ahead of Annie and Baker. Let me just say, McGee, I always attempt to be cognizant of individuals who vandalize my property. Not once, but twice. We're all on an expedition. Save your lives, fool, he said as his voice grew louder, almost echoing through the forest. 
I know why you are here. I know what you did to my temple in Arizona. And although I admire your determination, all of you, it's most unfortunate. You are so clever and brave that I cannot tolerate such impertinence. What are you going to do with us? Annie shouted as she moved up to McGee. The Ram Damar turned slowly, his eyes squinting as if he were in a trance-like state. Then he raised his brows and smiled. I am going to do nothing with you, Miss Sinclair. If you remember where you are, Potero Grande is mine. And Potero Grande has, shall we say, certain rules. Yeah, the rules of your stupid church, said Baker, getting upset. Yes, Mr. Baker, the rules of my stupid church. Hey, I ain't putting on no headband, those dumb robes. Silence! Why should he be quiet, yelled McGee. You self-righteous... Your problem, McGee, said the Ramdamar, obviously losing his patience. Is that you don't know when you're defeated. Just what gives you the right to play God to all these people, cried Annie. How many innocent people have you brainwashed and stolen? I would not, he said, looking at his enforcers. I would not talk so loudly. Arrogance does not become you, Miss Sinclair. Come on, Annie. We're going to leave right now, said McGee. The Ram Damar motioned to his enforcers. They stepped forward and blocked McGee as he turned. Then he spun around. His upper lip curled as he looked at the Ram Damar. Let us get out of here. We've done nothing. I don't listen to your demands. Yes, you will, because we're not going anywhere with you, cried McGee as he moved forward. The Ram Damar raised his left hand into the air, thrusting open his palm. To their astonishment, a bright blue beam shot through the night air. McGee felt at first a strong electrical current hitting his stomach and moving up to his skull. His consciousness was wavering as he breathed erratically and collapsed to the ground. McGee! cried Annie as she moved toward him. But the Ram Dama was not through. He fired his bizarre energy beam at her and Baker, and they too fell forward, prisoners of the leader of the worldwide church. Bring them to the palace! he ordered, as the enforcers hoisted the three captives over their shoulders and carried them through the jungle. The Ram Dama moved slowly back to his sedan chair, bowing his head and meditating. They raised the chair upward, and as the Ram Dama was left to his own thoughts, they moved from the tent and back to the lighted complex in the central part of the caldera. Kennedy Spaceport was unusually quiet. Even though the launch of the short-range transport was less than two weeks away, all preparations were running far ahead of schedule, and at three o'clock in the morning there were only a few technicians and workers on the base. Through the moist night air, a military jeep sped across the runway and came to a screeching stop in front of the administration building. Pete Barrett stepped onto the sidewalk. He reached for his jacket and ran for the front doors. Racing quickly, he moved through the dimly lit corridors and headed to the communications room in the basement. That very moment, Dr. Savard stood impatiently in front of his screen on Research Station 19. As he waited for the transmission from the spaceport, he shifted his weight from foot to foot. His face, normally smooth and full of confidence, was remarkably tense like he had a bad toothache or stomach pains. Something was gnawing away at him. He started to pace, hoping the channel would open up, but it would be several minutes before the spaceport signal sounded. 
Barrett's face came over the airwaves, and he pushed back his sandy hair, picked up his cigarette as he waited for Savad to come on the communication. The doctor could see fatigue in Barrett's eyes. Doctor, said Barrett as Savard came into view. Can you hear me, Mr. Barrett? Yes, I hear you clearly. I came as soon as I got your message. Walter is on his way over here now. I have to report, began Savard, almost not wanting to admit he was not entirely right in his calculations. There has been a change in the situation. I figured as much, confessed Barrett. Why? I have no explanation for what has occurred. I have double-checked my data time and again. It's almost, it was most important, I be sure, before I bring this matter to your attention. Then you're saying we have a grave problem. No, I'm not saying that at all. I am saying, well, I misjudged the problem. Earth is in no danger, mind you. Well, that's reassuring, said Stoddard as he entered the room. In his plaid shirt and dark slacks, he seemed very much out of uniform. Oh, Mr. Director, I was just telling Mr. Barrett, we have witnessed a change. What kind of change? Asked Stoddard as he sat next to Barrett. In proximity and intensity, and I am growing more and more convinced of the absolute erratic nature of this phenomenon. All right, Doctor, let's get to the heart of it. What does this new situation mean? Let's get to the heart of this. What does this new situation mean to my launch? Asked Stoddard. Nothing. There is no immediate danger. I only want to be forthright with you and notify you of the change. Stoddard was silent for several seconds as he tried to work over the problem in his mind. He rubbed his tired eyes and then he looked up at the doctor. I want a collective decision on this, doctor. Oh, Walter, come on, scoffed Barrett. We can't have a public discussion of this. My God, do you realize what would happen? Imagine if this knowledge got in the hands of somebody like Matt Kellogg. I would agree with Mr. Barrett most emphatically, said Savard from the research station. What we have learned is of a very sensitive nature. We must keep on top of the situation and then make the executive decisions. Well, I want more opinions, overrode started. And then whatever decisions will be made will be made. Doctor. Yes, Mr. Director. I would like you to conduct the briefing in person. <laughs> My duties at the station. Doctor, I insist. Your personal presence rather than some screen will lend credence to the proceedings. Very well. I will make preparations at once, said the reluctant Savad. Thank you, Doctor. I know you're extremely busy and have other duties, but this issue requires your presence. Sid started. We'll do all the setup work down here. If you can just bring the appropriate data and prepare for the presentation, just let me reiterate my position. I do not question your judgment in this matter, Doctor. I merely want the best decision to be made. I understand, Mr. Director. Good, good. Look forward to your arrival. Thank you once again. Sid started as Savard abruptly cut the transmission. Barrett took one last drag on his cigarette and snuffed it out in the ashtray. He said nothing as Stoddard left the room. As he stared into the snowy screen, he began stroking his chin and wondering just where this was all leading. Join us again next week for another adventurous episode of the Ramdamas Kingdom, Who Is He Who Commands the Masses? Produced by Fitton Theatre of the Words.